Hi friend, welcome to the Quiet Connections podcast. Do you feel anxious and not good enough in social situations? Feel like you're weird, broken or don't fit in? You are not alone. Join Hayley and Stacey on a journey to quiet confidence. Picking up key insights to help you feel more calm and confident. So you can finally speak up, join in and feel like you belong too. Welcome to episode two of the Quiet Connections podcast. I'm Hayley. And I'm Stacey. And today we're going to be exploring how we may have developed anxiety in social situations. We want to get into this topic early on because it's so important for us to understand how we may be showing up in this world. So the majority of us can't pinpoint an actual event that may have first triggered those feelings of social anxiety and avoidance within us. We might quite often just think that this is the way that we've always been. So this can lead us to believing that it's just who we are and we can feel like we're broken or thinking that we're the only one struggling with this and quite often feel like we need fixing. And for myself and Haley, we definitely came from this place. Yep, I actually used to call myself defective and I just wanted to hide myself away because I felt like there was really something deeply wrong with me. And what we're talking about today is often a missing puzzle piece, but it's a key piece that you need right at the start of your journey because it's the foundation of the belief that you can change, that you have the ability to create change for yourself. And you don't need someone else to come along to rescue you or fix you, which is exactly what I thought I needed. I felt like I needed a magic pill or a genie to grant me a wish, or I actually believed that I needed brain surgery so that I could function like a normal human being in the world. But I came to realize that none of that was true. So let's dive right in and discover why how you are is not actually who you are. So what would change for you if you knew that your fearful, anxious, avoidant or people-pleasing thoughts, feelings and behaviours aren't actually who you are? For me, this meant when I first started learning about these things and really truly recognising them, it meant that I was able to actually start doing the things that scared me. I was able to start speaking publicly, expressing myself, to start asking for what I needed. And within that space, that was where I was able to start being able to make those all important changes for myself. So previously, like I mentioned in the last episode, I thought that I was just an anxious person, that that was who I was, that was part of my identity. And because of that, there was absolutely nothing that I could do to change it. That's what I believed about myself. That's, you know, what I thought my, like the rest of my life was going to be like. And that can be quite challenging for us because it can diminish a sense of hope almost that, that things can change. So the truth is that these thoughts, feelings and behaviors are not an inherent part of us, even though it may feel this way for you at the moment. They're just ways that we have learned how to respond to certain situations in life. And these reactions and responses are most likely for you at the moment running on autopilot and running from your unconscious. 
So learning this information and getting to understand that how we are isn't who we are is often the very first thing that we need to be able to start pulling those pieces apart. So I think this was a a hugely important step for me because I used to really beat myself up for being this quieter person, this anxious person, this shy person. And I really kept myself in this like the shy box and like I used to think oh shy people don't do things like this and and so I can't you know even when I did have an answer I couldn't put my hand up in class because I was like people wouldn't expect that of me so I used to really try to conform to this label that I had been given when I was younger and that I had really clung on to but as I started to see that the way that I was showing up in the world, the the way that I felt, the anxiety, the fear, the avoidant behaviors, um, I started to see that that wasn't really who I was. It was just something that I had learned to do as a child. It gave me that permission to, to stop beating myself up about how I was showing up. Yeah, that made a huge difference for me as well. And being able to see myself from the perspective of a child acting in that way or having learned how to respond in that way meant that I was able to be so much more kinder towards myself because if I saw another child, someone who perhaps wasn't me, but another child who was just afraid and was fearful of other people noticing her or being able to see her and was afraid to speak up my response to that child wouldn't be to criticize them or to dismiss them or invalidate their experiences it it would be to support them and hold their hand and tell them that it's okay yeah and isn't it fascinating that our approach is to start criticizing ourselves and beating ourselves up Mm. and what we've learned from from all the research on self-compassion is that actually when you approach yourself with much more compassion then you're much more likely to achieve what you want to achieve you're much more likely to learn and grow and it's far more productive than self-criticism so Mm. when we start being compassionate to ourselves we really help us along this path to to growth and getting to to be the person we want to be. So we've both mentioned kind of the way that we used to to see ourselves as this anxious person or this shy person and I imagine that you probably see yourself similarly. The thing is that we know our thoughts are not the same as reality because all the information that gets taken in through our senses is filtered in our mind based on our own beliefs, our past experiences and our expectations. So if I'm given the label that I'm shy as a child, I'm going to endlessly see all these moments where I'm shy and where I can't do things mm-hmm. and I'm, it's just going to keep confirming itself to me. And then also we we show up in ways that do confirm that because our beliefs just want to prove themselves right. So yes, yeah, exactly. And learning that kind of blew my mind. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what? (laughs) Actually even showing up in ways that just reinforce the things that I didn't like about myself. Yeah, that's hard to learn, isn't it? There's um yes. there's an upcoming episode with the wonderful Vicky Otter where we dig a lot more into our the, our thinking. 
Um, so be sure to look out for that. Mm. But basically what it means is that we're automatically and unconsciously deleting tons of information and we make loads of assumptions. So the story that comes out the other side of all of this isn't necessarily that reflective of reality. It's reflective of your mind more than anything else. So what's happening here is that you're actually creating the world that you see and experience with your own mind. However, what we've really come to learn is that before we create the world around us with our minds, society creates our minds. We pick up messages from the people around us as we grow up that shape our minds and our nervous system and set us up with go-to patterns of thought, behavior and beliefs, which for most of us includes a number that just aren't really helpful. Yeah. So one of those beliefs that I had, which really wasn't helpful for me, was believing that I was useless and that I was incapable of carrying out very simple day-to-day activities or, or tasks. and you know, this belief kind of drove this idea that I had to get everything right the first time, the very first time. If I couldn't do something correct or right the first time, then I couldn't do it at all. And quite often this then resulted in me just not even trying and not having a go and giving up at that very first hurdle. And this is something that I I see still exists today and I'm still working on it that when something feels hard or when something feels challenging my go-to response is to want to give up and rather than you know just continue and and see it as as a learning process like that little voice inside my head says just stop just just give up and what I've been able to recognize over the last few years of starting to explore where this belief came from is that when I was a child and I was doing something, if if my mum saw me struggling or saw me finding it difficult or finding it challenging, my mum's response to that was give it here and would take it off of me and, and do it for me as opposed to supporting me to work through that challenge or encouraging me to, to keep trying and to keep having a go. So internally there's this expectation that if I can't do something right the first time one someone's either going to take it away from me and I'm going to feel some shame around that because that's going to prove that I'm as incapable and, and as useless as you know that part of me is believing that I am and secondly there's also that part of me that wants to give it away because I'm finding it hard and I've not learned how to work through those challenging moments So it's useful to point out that we often see ourselves as an anxious person or as a perfectionist or as a people pleaser, but we often don't actually like these things about ourselves. But what we're not recognizing is that these are just our go-to patterns of behavior based on the ways in which we have learned how to respond to stress. A leading researcher that both myself and Haley love is Dr. Gabor Mate. And we love his work because he looks at the impact of how our early experiences shape our minds, shape our nervous systems, and shape the way in which we are showing up in the world. Separating those differences between you know, who we truly are and how we're responding. 
So he says, what we call the personality is often a jumble of genuine traits and adopted coping styles that do not reflect our true self at all, but the loss of it. So what he's saying here is that on one hand, we've got our genuine self, our authentic self, the the traits and the qualities that make us who we truly are. And on some level, you will know what those aspects are within yourself. They may be a little bit hidden right now, or you may feel like you can't quite reach them or that they're out of sight almost, or, or you may even doubt that they exist at all. But deep down, you know that those bits are still there and they are still within you. And on the other hand, we have all these adopted coping styles, all these strategies that we've learned, the things that we describe as being or making us an anxious person or or a perfectionist or a people pleaser, the behaviors that are driven by those fears of what are other people going to think? How does the world want me to be? Yes. So to separate those strategies from who we really are, first, we have to understand how we learned them in the first place. Well, I think that was a really good example that you gave about your mum's day, Sue. And it demonstrates just how easily these messages are passed from one generation to the next. Um, And my experience was very much the same. And my, you know, I spoke in the first episode about my mum saying to my little um, nephew that, he should be coloring in a, a face a different color because this, this isn't the color of people's faces. And um, and the outcome of that was a few weeks later, I was around visiting him for his birthday and he called me to help him with some coloring and he wanted me to tell him which color went where. And that yeah. just felt heartbreaking. I know. <laughs> but I could just see that that's where my own perfectionism had come from as well and I can see that in my mum um and I think the reality is that we're growing up in a culture where so many of the adults around us are stressed out they're overworked financially struggling um experiencing their own mental health challenges whether that's diagnosed or otherwise um they're carrying unprocessed hurt and grief suppressing their own self and their own feelings they're um you know, not able to cope with feeling vulnerable and having tough conversations and they've got all their armor on. You know, they, they might be detached or emotionally unavailable and often seeking some kind of peace, fulfillment and freedom from their own discomfort in ways that aren't necessarily healthy for them or for us as their children. Yeah, I'd just like to pop in here also that from what I can see now from my mum's like response to me I believe that she was you know trying to act from a place of like compassion of being like let me help you but it just came across in 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 just like an, an, an unhelpful way for a child that didn't help me learn how to actually work through challenges but I think from her like looking at it from her perspective it's almost like my child is struggling I need to fix this for her I need to you know make sure that she's not struggling anymore but also from a place of my mum's own personal challenges and struggles with um having to get things right and things needing to be good enough as well and you know that unprocessed pain that or or struggles that that my mum experiences just being acted out and expressed 
onto me. <laughs> yeah. And I can certainly see similar patterns in me and my mum where it's like, if I can't do it perfectly, then I'm not going to do it at all. Mm. And I guess that parenting children in a way that actually promotes confidence and promotes self-acceptance um, and encourages healthy connections and boundaries is it's really challenging when you're wrestling with your own unprocessed issues or packing them down. Yeah, because again, I think a lot of our, like take our generation and our parents' generation, for example, that was the message that they received that, you know, it's not okay to talk about these things, you know, it's not vulnerability okay is weakness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only way to survive in this world is to push all of that away. And that's been such a strong message within our society and within our culture for such a long time now. And in my personal opinion, I, I feel like we're now kind of reaching this point where we're starting to realize that that's not the best approach anymore. And everything is starting to like, I suppose, bubble up to the surface and yeah, it's, it's time for change. <laughs> Absolutely. It really is. The problem is that we just, we can't ignore these emotions. If we're packing them down, they're going somewhere. You know, the more we try to ignore them, the more intense they get, the more easily triggered we are, the more, you know, shut down and detached we, we might be to try and cope. And the more we feel the need to numb those uncomfortable feelings. I think essentially it's just hard to show up and be present with a child when this is all bubbling away under the surface, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I know like, I don't have children myself personally, but I know um, having been around young children and especially a few years ago before I had really done much work on myself, how uncomfortable that experience could be for me. I can remember one situation which I feel not not very proud of um, <laughs> of telling my nephew to shut up because he was excited about something and was getting really loud um, you know as, as a child naturally does when they feel excited and because I was I suppose not in a very good place that day and I, I wasn't feeling myself so to speak um, and I, I was feeling quite overwhelmed and what I wanted was like some silence and some quiet and there's my nephew being you know his excited self because something good was happening and my response to that was, shut up, be quiet. And even as I said it back then, I kind of like heard the echoes of like my, oh, like my own childhood and was like, oh my God, I can't believe that I just said that. When I know that, you know, when I was a child and when that happened to me, you know, my response was to shut down and to just go silent, take myself away, feel like I'm unwanted, feel like... um that people don't want me in in their presence and again like I'm being an inconvenience to them so you make a really good point there Stacey and from my own experience I was you know also told to be quiet and don't be an inconvenience mm -hmm. and and give my parents the space that they wanted to to make them happy and I think that for a lot of our parents they don't necessarily have those skills to or a lot of just adults in society in general we, we we've never really learned the skills to regulate our own emotions and we try to control our environment including the the children in the environment in order for us to feel comfortable mm. instead of doing that inner work 
Yeah. And when a child doesn't meet the expectations of the adults around them, be that realistic for their developmental age or not, then they can really experience that criticism, um, ridicule or shaming or shouting or slapping or even disengagement and avoidance. And all of those Mm. strategies can be really harmful to a child. But the problem is that they are embedded into our culture as parenting techniques. And I can actually remember being regularly told that I am loved but not liked as a child whenever my mum felt emotionally triggered by my behaviour. And I can see that it's a tactic to get me as a child to comply with whatever she wanted me to be doing. And usually that's probably be, you know, be quiet, don't be inconvenient. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, seemingly small, insignificant messages like this, they really quickly add up for a young person and can help to form that belief that we're unlikable and unlovable. And so that it's risky to show who we really are because we've been rejected so many times before. Mm. And I don't know if it was the same for you as well, but those messages I also received when I was at school as well, in primary school, um, from teachers. You know, if I just remember a moment, um, I think I was in reception. I was in reception or year one. I was very, very young. And we were sat on the floor and my teacher was playing Postman Pat on the piano. Um, and we were all supposed to be singing along and stuff like that. And I was really enjoying myself. And so I started laughing and, um, you know, the teacher turned, stopped playing the piano, turned to me in front of everyone and told me to behave myself and to just, like stop laughing and to shut up. And I was like, oh, I was God. having such a good time. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really common to get these messages from our teachers as well mm. who are dealing with the same things that our parents are really and exactly you know they've got their own own challenges going on in the background as well and you know maybe they're a bit like you said not not in the best place feeling a bit overwhelmed not having a good day um mm. or maybe they just can't even see that the child is having a good time <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> So sometimes we just lose touch of like, you know, our ability to put ourselves in a child's shoes mm. and, and see what they need and and feel their experience. Yeah. And and again, like all the adults that, you know, in, in our lives, like when we were children, they're also all coming from these same places of the, the things that they learned when they were children, the beliefs that um that they developed, the messages that they received. So you know, it's, it's being passed down. Yeah. So from the perspective of the parent or from just the adults in general that are around us, they don't usually have bad intentions. They probably are experiencing anxiety themselves and, you know, don't have those regulation skills as, as you've already mentioned. Um, so everything does become about controlling as opposed to like working with and, I guarantee that there will be plenty of people who are listening to this right now who are going to have, you know, their own issues around feeling like they've been controlled throughout their life. That's certainly something that is a big trigger for me. Um, And I can very easily, easily perceive a person's behavior as them. Oh my God, they're trying to control me when that's not actually true at all. But, you know, that's my internal representation. That's how I, I can interpret things sometimes because of that sense of 
you know having my my behavior and stuff controlled as a child as opposed to being worked with so on the other side of you know all this interaction is that it's a huge threat to our well-being as as children and because as children we depend on those adults around us for survival we will mold ourselves into whatever we believe the adults around us want us to be or what we believe that they need us to be so what happens in these situations is that we surrender our own sense of authenticity we disconnect from who we really are in order to fit in with who we believe everyone else around us needs us to be I think it's worth pausing for a moment here because I I really want to acknowledge how difficult it can be to hear this Mm. and this is especially important to hear if you're someone experiencing social anxiety but who considers yourself to have had a happy childhood too so this is what I struggled with when I was learning about this I love my parents and I grew up to be extremely protective of my mother and sure there were things in my childhood that were upsetting you know my parents divorced and you know there was death of grandparents and things but my childhood wasn't that bad I mean I couldn't say that I was abused I had a roof over my head food and clothes so I thought it can't have been my childhood that had affected me and I found it far easier for me to choose to believe that there was something wrong with me than to accept that I could have been affected by my parents And I also didn't want to blame them for the way that I was because I knew that they struggled too and they did the best that they could. And really, who am I to say that that wasn't enough? But then I learned about adverse childhood experiences. Adverse childhood experiences are potentially traumatic events that occur in childhood and they tend to affect about three in five people. The reason that I say potentially traumatic is because according to Dr. Gabor Mate, trauma isn't about what happens to you it's about what happens inside you as a result of an external event so it's not about the event itself yeah and I remember that being such an important piece of information like when I first learned that that changed the way in which I viewed my past experiences instead of searching for that external situation or circumstance that I could use to validate the way in which I felt Instead, it allowed me to see things from the perspective of what is actually going on and recognizing that it was how I felt about certain situations and the response that I had internally, um, that in any moment where I felt a sense of shame, that that was when the trauma was occurring. And when I start looking at my life from that perspective, I can see all these small moments of, you know, how I came to learn how to respond in the way in which I have been showing up in in the world and did you feel like you had somebody that you could talk to when you felt that way no (laughs) no and again this is what um Gabor Mate says all the time isn't it of like if you didn't have those that connection with a supportive adult in to be able to work through those those challenging moments or work through those painful feelings that then we saw them and actually I was um I was watching a webinar or something the other day and someone mentioned the fact that like that trauma gets stored in our bodies with the intention that we will come back to it later when we can actually process it so if we're children and we experience those overwhelming experience like 
overwhelming feelings or painful feelings and we don't have that supportive adult connected adult to work through them with as children we often can't process those feelings by ourselves so our bodies hold on to them with the intention of at some point we're going to process this and we're going to work through it because it doesn't just disappear it's it's still there so what we often find is that we're storing all of this within us and at some point we need to come back to it and that could be years and years later like with me and you Haley, for example or with any of you who are listening right now this is probably the point that you're at where it's like now is the time to start processing what you're saying there Stacey really links to the work of Dr Nadine Burke Harris who is another amazing researcher into adverse childhood experiences and she's written a book called The Deepest Well and she's uncovered how some of us have protective factors and someone to speak with about hurtful events which mean that trauma doesn't actually manifest inside of us but many of us we don't feel that we don't have that safe and empathetic person to work through those difficult feelings and experiences with so we tend to keep the pain to ourselves and maybe convince ourselves that we must be deserving of it. Um, And when I look back on my life, that feels so true for me. Mm. And me. As coaches, we often speak with people who describe having those happy childhood. And we've kind of no known experience that could trigger the socially anxious responses that they have. And then the more we, we work together and the more we start to like dig into their how they're feeling, how they're responding. And, you know, where is that coming from? They start to share events and and parenting patterns that would be classed as adverse childhood experiences. Because the reality is that an adverse childhood experience can be as common as your parents divorcing or as simple as feeling that you weren't loved or thought of as important. It could be that your family didn't seem to support or feel close to each other. There may have been that sense of um, emotional unavailability within the household. So it's easy to see how our parents' own issues and the adults around us, how their physical and emotional availability, how their own stress responses can really impact a child here. Our parents' actions or lack of interaction are more about where they are in their lives than it is about us as children. But when we are that young and when we are children, you know, our understanding of the world and the way in which like we're able to interpret the world at that age is that we usually or we naturally make everything about us. We we seem to believe that they're responding to us in that way because it's who it's because of of us and it's not anything else that that could be be going on I want to make it really really clear that this isn't about placing blame on our parents for the way that we are right now they're in the middle of this domino effect too so it's Mm -hmm. often passed down from one generation to the next as intergenerational trauma and it's repeated until somebody moves into healing it didn't start with you and it didn't start with your parents so there's no one to blame here is simply a cycle that so many of us have found ourselves in. For example, Mm. I know that my mum's mum grew up in a children's home. 
And you can imagine what traumas she must have experienced there and how that would be passed on in her own parenting styles. Yeah, and my my dad was adopted, so that has its own impacts as well. My mum's parents divorced. Um, my granddad was in a war and he was a prisoner of war for two years. So I, I definitely know that, like, just having watched him at, at the end of his life, that there was a trauma even just around that that situation, even though he was 20 at that time. But there was trauma there that he hadn't processed and hadn't dealt with because that all kind of came out then. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We might feel like we have a very happy, safe, stable life when you look at it from the outside. But there's all of this stuff that's going on, you know, under the surface that you wouldn't necessarily pick up on unless you were in that experience. And and even then it's hard to put your finger on it. Mm. And again, like when I learned about that cycle of, of intergenerational trauma, again, that was such a, a helpful thing for me to recognize and, and understand because like you said, when we remove that blame as well, it helps us to heal our, ourselves because we're not looking around wanting like to point fingers at people or like, holding on to to the anger and the resentment that we might feel it's okay like literally no one here is at fault it's it's the cycle it's the you know it's collective trauma almost as well isn't it the like society is holding on to we're continuously sharing these messages passing these messages along um And yeah, like you said, at some point, like we have to step out of that cycle or step off of that carousel. And that happens when the person steps into healing. So I think it's important for us to remember as we go through this journey that we don't know how to do better until we learn about it. Um, And just as we look at our parents as well, we need to remember that, you know, they might not feel capable of changing until they see themselves in a different light and the same for you or you might feel like you're stuck in your ways until you get the right kind of support Mm. so let's look at what happens when we do experience trauma in the form of adverse childhood experiences and how this relates to social anxiety now okay so when when we experience trauma we're adapting from the inside out our nervous system learns to bypass our natural social engagement system and it leans towards either a fight response which might look like anger and defensiveness or a flight response which would be running away or distracting ourselves it could also lean towards a freeze response which is when we shut down and perhaps isolate and a fawn response, which would look like us people pleasing and putting other people first, putting ourselves last. And these become our nervous system's new go-to settings. So when we have a dysregulated stress response, we're acting and thinking from a place of pain and fear. We might not even know how we're feeling or what our bodies are telling us that we need because quite often we've then disconnected from those gut instincts and and from our body's natural communication. So we become less flexible in our responses and we might start to act more defensively. And I've seen that shame plays a huge role in this too. Um, This is something that I noticed in myself and in 
everyone that I have coached who has experienced social anxiety too. And I know that the research heavily links feelings of shame to traumatic experiences. So I want to share Brene Brown's definition of shame here because her work has really helped me to connect the dots. And Brene is a renowned shame and vulnerability researcher who began exploring what gets in the way of connection. And her definition of shame that emerged from her research is this. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. And I feel like this really gets to the core of the issue. It doesn't matter if you describe yourself as socially anxious or not good enough. Underneath it, we see this one common theme crop up time and time again. One of the most interesting things from Brene's research is that when we're experiencing feelings of shame, we tend to default to using certain behaviours as self-protective shame shields. And in her books, she's introduced us to researcher Linda Hartling, um, who shares three strategies of disconnection. And I'm going to list them now. So have a think about which strategy you might use primarily. So the first one is moving away, which might look like withdrawing, hiding, silencing ourselves and keeping secrets. The second one is moving towards, which may look like seeking to appease and please others and to be seen as perfect. And the third one is trying to gain power over others through aggression, blaming and shaming. Yeah, so listening to those, I can definitely see that moving away was my primary strategy. Um, withdrawing and hiding, keeping myself quiet. Um, and actually, yeah, keeping secrets as a child was a big thing. Um, if, I, if I had done something that I believed I would get in trouble for, it was very much cover all traces of evidence, don't say a word and hopefully no one will realize that that usually wasn't the case um, <laughs> um but yeah withdrawing withdrawing is like my like the big thing that that I would respond with um and actually I used to receive a lot of messages and stuff from my friends being like hello are you hiding from the world again and it was like crap yes um yeah, and that moving away makes sense because we know that social anxiety is characterized by anxiety and avoidance. And that's triggered by an intense fear of negative criticism in performance and social interaction situations. And we know that whenever possible, when we feel socially anxious, we'll attempt to avoid our most feared situations. And whenever avoidance isn't possible, it becomes more about enduring this situation with a sense of panic or distress and you might feel pressure to show up perfectly or to please other people so that might be a, a moving towards as a secondary response when you simply can't move away we may start off with using those moving away strategies of wanting to withdraw wanting to hide ourselves keep ourselves safe and protected um but there are many situations in life where actually we we feel well, or like we, we can't respond in that way like going to work or going to school so we have to show up physically at least and so when we enter those situations we 
it's very easy for us to then start adopting a different strategy which for most of us particularly those of us who are experiencing social anxiety will be to be moving towards wanting to please other people and to make sure we're not putting ourselves in those positions of you know a a threat of rejection or people not liking us or being judged absolutely so the theory of social anxiety is Firstly, growing up, we're collecting all of these messages that tell us that we're not good enough and we start to feel ashamed of who we are. Then our deepest belief becomes that we're flawed and unworthy. And this means that we're expecting to be criticised and rejected. We know that any perceived threat of rejection sets off our internal panic alarms and puts us into survival modes. And this includes just our expectation of rejection. And then to self-protect, we adopt these shame shields as a way to try and fit in and hide our flaws. And we've adapted to respond like this because as human beings, we're wired for connection. It's been key to our survival as a species. And that connection, our attachment to our parents, is essential to our survival as a child too. The problem is that whenever we're using these shame shields, they're actually moving us further away from our own authenticity. So we're hiding who we truly are. And this is what trauma really is. It's a disconnection from yourself. And if you listen to episode one, you would have heard both myself and Haley talking about how we felt disconnected from ourselves. And this is what we were describing. It's like we're rejecting ourselves now so that somebody else doesn't get a chance to do that later. That wasn't the end of our story and it's not the end of yours. You may have learned to respond with social anxiety due to things that were outside of your control as a child, but you do not have to continue with the same old patterns now. There's no magic pill or quick fix that somebody else can give to you. However, if you can learn something like you've learned all those adapted survival strategy behaviors, then you can unlearn them too. Because as human beings, we're amazing at doing that. So once you realize that how you're seeing the world and yourself and how you're showing up isn't fixed, you have the ability to question those old unhelpful beliefs thoughts and behaviors that have been holding you back and to practice choosing to respond in new ways that do work for you instead. So this means seeing that you're the one person who can now begin to recognize those old automatic patterns that are no longer serving you and then start to do the work to change them so that you can show up as your true authentic self. And how empowering is that? It absolutely is. And I'd like to offer you this final empowering thought from Gabal Mate. So Gabal tells us, it is not the world, not what's outside of us, but what we hold inside that traps us. We may not be responsible for the world that created our minds, but we can take responsibility for the mind with which we create our world. And I think that's a gentle reminder for us to acknowledge the hand that we've been dealt and see it for what it is, and also focus on what we can do to get really curious about the way that you think and feel and behave and the things that you believe and to look at what else could be true. What other choices do you have in the way that you show up? What do you need to learn and understand? What tools and techniques could help you?
We're going to be offering some new insights and tips throughout this series to help you collect some of those puzzle pieces that you might not have yet. For those of you that would like to download an ebook detailing what we've covered in today's podcast, you can go to quietconnections.co.uk forward slash free gifts. Join us again soon for episode three, where I'll be talking with writing and wellbeing workshop facilitator, Emily Wheeler, who's a beautiful, quiet soul herself. And we have a lovely chat about how writing can benefit our well-being. We talk about comfort zone stretches and also why you don't have to apologize for being quiet. In the meantime, please stay connected. Thanks for listening. You can find the show notes from this episode at quietconnections.co.uk. Claim your free gift now at quietconnections.co.uk forward slash free gifts. With gratitude for the support of the National Lottery Community Fund.